Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. Though thousands of miles apart, these two historic events moved almost on parallel tracks today. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again. And they are well along now on their trip to West Germany and eventually to home. Just before Mr. Carter got to Andrews Air Force Base for his trip home to Plains, the hostages' departure was officially confirmed. They had taken off about a half an hour after he was no longer president. The timing could hardly have been accidental. Could hardly have been accidental. That's an interesting point. Let's discuss it, shall we? Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Well, it was quite the scoop Last week in the New York Times by their White House correspondent, Peter Baker, we referred to it once or twice on this program program last week as it played into some of the other stories that we happen to be covering in several of last week's shows regarding accountability for U.S. presidents, specifically in this case regarding the indictment watch that is still underway now for Donald Trump in New York City today. During my conversation last week with the nation's John Nichols, for example, on the critical upcoming state Supreme Court elections in Wisconsin that could finally flip the Badger State's high court to a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years, we also discussed with Nichols the very real possibility of actual accountability for a U.S. president with the potential of criminal charges believed likely to come down very soon against him, against Trump. I argued at one point that thanks to the lack of accountability, in particular criminal accountability, for so many U.S. presidents over the past four or five decades at least, 
that it was very easy to draw a direct line of that lack of accountability from Nixon to Reagan to Bush to Donald Trump. Now, I should have been more specific as to which Bush I was talking uh, to there. But frankly, both Poppy and W, well, they fit in just fine, neither of whom have been held accountable for any of their work or any of their career crimes, war crimes included. The lack of accountability for each of those presidents, in fact, ended up making the next one possible, I have argued, all the way up to Donald Trump today. Peter Baker's scoop then in the New York Times last week headlined a four-decade secret, one man's story of sabotaging Jimmy Carter's re-election, detailed a, a secret that a political operative by the name of Ben Barnes had held close to his vest for some 43 years, but felt that as it was announced that the 98-year-old former Democratic president Jimmy Carter was entering hospice care, he felt that this story should be told to correct the record for history. The nearly 85-year-old Ben Barnes's claims, uh, according to Baker at the Times, that he accompanied his mentor at the time, a guy by the name of John Connolly, a former Democratic governor of Texas who had later sought the Republican nomination for president in 1980 after switching parties, um, they went uh, together, Barnes and Connolly, on a long trip throughout the Middle East in late summer of that year, late summer of 1980, after Connolly had lost the nomination for president as a Republican to Ronald Reagan. Connolly had hoped that his subsequent work for the Reagan team would result in his appointment as Secretary of State or Defense or something in a Reagan administration. Now, according to Baker at the Times, quote, what happened next? Mr. Barnes has largely kept secret for 43, nearly 43 years. Connolly, he said, took him to one Middle Eastern capital after another that summer, meeting with a host of regional leaders to deliver a blunt message to be passed to Iran. Don't release the hostages before the U.S. presidential election. Mr. Reagan will win and he will give you a better deal. Then shortly after returning home, Barnes said Connolly and he reported to William Casey, the chair of Mr. Reagan's campaign at the time and later the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, briefing him about the trip in an airport lounge in Dallas. Carter's camp, Baker reports, has long suspected that Casey or someone else in Reagan's orbit sought to secretly torpedo efforts to liberate the hostages before the election. And in fact, books have been written on that on what came to be called the October Surprise. But congressional investigations debunked previous theories of what happened, at least according to Peter Baker last week in The Times. Confirming Barnes's account, he says, is problematic after so much time. Connolly, Casey and other central figures have long since died and Barnes has no diaries or memos to corroborate his account. But he has no obvious reason to make up the story, said Baker, and indeed expressed trepidation at going public because of the reaction from fellow Democrats. Barnes said that he was speaking up because Carter, he said, now deserves to know the truth. 
Barnes did identify four living people that he says he shared the story with over the years, all four of them uh, historians and or members of Lyndon B. Johnson's administration or the LBJ Foundation, according to uh, Baker, quote, confirmed in recent days that Barnes, in fact, shared the story with them years ago, adding that they had never known Barnes to be untruthful. Connolly who managed Johnson's unsuccessful bid for the Democratic presidential nominee, uh, nomination in 1960, he went on to work for both John Kennedy and LBJ. He may now be best known for sitting in the front seat of the limousine with then-President John F. Kennedy when he was shot and killed in Dallas in 1963. Connolly suffered injuries in that shooting, but he otherwise survived before later going on to, yes, switch parties and working for Richard Nixon as Treasury Secretary. Records, Peter Baker notes, at the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library and Museum confirm part of Barnes's story on all of this, an itinerary found in early March this year, this month. In Mr. Connolly's files indicated that he did, in fact, leave Houston on July 18 of uh, 1980 for a trip that would take him to Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel before returning home to Houston on August 11. Mr. Barnes was, in fact, listed as accompanying him on that trip. In 1980, after Ronald Reagan had secured the GOP nomination, Connolly resolved to help Reagan beat Mr. Carter, said Barnes. The term October Surprise, the Time notes, was originally used by the Reagan camp to describe its fears that Mr. Carter would manipulate the hostage crisis to effect a release just before the election. To forestall such a scenario, Bill Casey was alleged to have met with representatives of Iran in July and August of 1980 in Madrid, leading to a deal supposedly finalized in Paris in October in which a future Reagan administration would ship arms to Tehran through Israel in exchange for the hostages being held until after that year's election. That, in fact, was the so-called better deal that Reagan's camp was said, said to have offered uh, for not releasing the hostages sooner, before the election. Barnes's new information would seem to shore up at least some of those decades-long reports and rumors and congressional investigations examining whether Ronald Reagan's campaign had, in fact, worked to undermine the release, the earlier release, of 52 American hostages held for more than a year in Iran following the revolution led by Muslim cleric Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979. Indeed, the hostages were eventually released only after Reagan's election victory and his subsequent inauguration in January of 1981. As you heard at the very top of the show, they were released within the hour after Ronald Reagan was sworn in. But in response to that New York Times scoop over the past weekend, and it certainly was a scoop, longtime investigative reporter Russ Baker, who is no relation to Peter Baker at the Times, to my knowledge, but he is the author of the 2009 best-selling book Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years, which in fact explores several of the points related to whatever 
may have gone on before the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, as overseen by Bill Casey, who would later become director of the CIA under Ronald Reagan, as former CIA director George Herbert Walker Bush served as Reagan's vice president. In a lengthy, detailed edition of his Going Deep newsletter over the weekend, Russ Baker responds to what he charges that the New York Times scoop by Peter Baker may have missed and otherwise offers additional context to the newly uh, detailed claims by Ben Barnes, who, Russ reports, he has known and liked over the years as they occasionally have communicated on a number of topics throughout his career. Joining us now to discuss all of the above and specifically what the Ronald Reagan victory meant to the nation and still means to the nation, even today, in the form of so much that has followed that election by hook or by crook, is Russ Baker, who now serves as editor-in-chief of the investigative media outlet WhoWhatWhy.org and as author of the aforementioned newsletter, Going Deep with Russ Baker. Oh, Mr. Baker, thanks, sir, for taking the time to join us today on the broadcast and for your keen insights on the New York Times scoop last week, sir. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, first, I should note, as you do, that the New York Times has long sort of poo-pooed this uh, story of a conspiracy to help Reagan win the 1980 election by secretly negotiating to keep the hostages from being released. On what basis had the New York Times poo-pooed this over the years? And how significant is it, as you see it, that they're even running this uh, arguable uh, scoop uh, story on all of this right now? Well, uh, my first of all, the whole thing makes my head spin, and I <laughs> only imagine that your listeners' heads are spinning right now. So I'd like to take pity on all of us yes. <laughs> uh, about the general complexity of the matter. Yep. Uh, so as I speak with you, I'm going to try to sort of just pull out a few uh, central points because the details are just absolutely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Number one, uh, the Times uh, has tended over the years to... Uh, uh, give a lot of credence to congressional investigations, uh, although I think anybody who's actually worked on a congressional investigation or seen them up close knows that particularly when it comes to matters of national security and uh, any of these sorts of governmental panels, whether it's the Warren Commission or the House Select Committee on Assassinations or uh, those looking into uh, Iran-Contra, or the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, or any of these other things, mm -hmm. I don't think they've ever really gotten to the bottom of things. And even the 9-11 uh, commission um, was stymied mm -hmm. uh, by uh, the government and was unable to get some of the documents that they needed. So I think we have to accept that these uh, investigations end up having to wash their hands of the whole thing and say, well, we, we just don't know. Uh, we don't have anything definitive here because they weren't able to get anything and, and maybe weren't allowed to get anything. So uh, the fact that the Times likes to, 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 to trumpet the, uh, the, the conclusions uh, by all of these panels that nothing wrong here, folks, nothing to see, I think that sort of uh, gives us a reason to be skeptical of the Times in general and to wonder when they suddenly have this scoop, why they have this scoop. Mm. Now, what I do in my uh, in my uh, newsletter, uh, going deep with Russ Baker, it's also, by the way, up today on our news website, Who, What, Why. Mm -hmm. uh, you can read the article. It's quite, I think it's quite long. 
Um, what I do is I, I look at uh, the, the specific claims that are made in uh, the Times article, and frankly, they don't make any sense. Mm. And I don't know, we probably don't have time here to go into detail, but they don't make any sense. Uh, there's no real rationale for why the trip took place. Uh, Ben's statements are contradictory. I'm sort of, frankly, I'm shocked that the Times ran this. Mm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I think they would probably want to hope the whole thing blows over once they read what I've got to say. But I, I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if at least internally there wasn't some sort of an inquiry because uh, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't think it makes sense that John Connolly was in a position uh, to, to be involved with this. Um, and I don't think there's any reason that he would have taken Ben Barnes along on a trip for that purpose. I think that what they were doing is they were a couple of hustlers who were trying to get business, and they were trying to uh, get business from these uh, Arab regimes. I think that's what the purpose of the trip was, and that's why Ben says he, he, he can't say for sure that the purpose of the trip uh, was for this uh, Iranian deal, but then he also says that he believes it was for that purpose. Well, mm. if he's not sure and he was there, yeah. then where's the evidence that that's what it was for? That's the first thing. Uh-huh. The second thing is, the second thing is that Connolly, as you pointed out, Brad, Connolly was angling for a job in the Reagan administration. He he'd been beaten by Reagan, right, uh, in the primaries, and now he's trying to get a job with Reagan as Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State. Well, what better thing to do than to travel around the Middle East and meet with a bunch of uh, regimes and then go to Reagan and say, "Hey, listen, I I just met with all these people, and here's you know what I conveyed to them, what they conveyed to me." He was setting himself up to get a job. Um, I don't think he knew anything. I don't think he brought anything to this. And I also would point out that at the very same time that uh, this was going on, uh, Casey, who was uh, Reagan's campaign chairman, was allegedly himself negotiating directly uh, with the Iranians. So what did he need John Connolly to do this for? Anyway, the mm-hmm. bottom line is I think that story is wrong. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think basically Ben was, was, was playing around a little bit there. He, he likes to do that. He's a, he's a little bit of a Texas tall tale guy. You know, mm. a nice guy like him, farming, mm. uh, but uh, not always trustworthy. And I think that uh, I think he likes the limelight, and uh, there's that. So mm. I think the more important thing, Brad, is that is that if this story is not true, mm-hmm. uh, and the Times ran a story that is not true, but did not follow up on the stories that were true, I think we really have to look hard at that because. Uh, you know, in, in the history of those of us who tried to investigate all of these things, there's always been these kind of um, uh, uh, people who appeared with stories that turned out to be fake. And I think you know perfectly well what happens when, when, when those people do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it discredits the whole story. Mm. And, and as we found, when I was back at the Village Voice mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, early 90s, we were looking into all this stuff, and we concluded that some of these People who said they had piloted the planes uh, that Casey flew on or the later flights with uh, Casey and George H.W. Bush to Paris to finalize this deal, that these people were lying. Mm. We, we found that they were making it up. Records showed they were actually, you know, in, uh, in Oregon or something at the time they were supposed to be in Paris. So uh, I don't think that because these people made up their stories or because Ben is grasping at straws, I don't think that discredits the story, but I think it's harmful. And I think we have to focus on the real evidence that there was such a deal. And frankly, what I'm much more interested in mm-hmm. is what you what you referenced, which is 
if there was such a deal, and I, could, I think I could make an argument there was, what were the consequences of that deal to America uh, actually over the last oh, 43 years or so? And, and that is sort of where I want to go here with this uh, story, uh, Russ Baker. But t- just to be clear, you it sounds clearly like you, even though you know Ben Barnes, uh, you, you actually, uh, I think in your story, you say you don't know him to be a liar, but a, sort of a tall, a Texas tall tale teller. Uh, if you don't believe his side of this story. You reported on this back at Village Voice, also a bit in your book, Family of Secrets. Do you believe that something happened here, that there was some sort of a deal made to uh, uh, forestall the release of the hostages until after the election? Yeah, and just to really quickly tick off a few of many uh, aspects that I think point toward a Reagan-Bush deal with Iran to hold hostages. And I want to point out, by the way, folks, that that would have been treason, you know, as mm-hmm. I say in my article, a hanging offense. I mean, uh, to, to, to make a deal with the enemy of the United States, and we were in a de facto war with them, uh, that they were holding American citizens, 52 of them, and to actually essentially encourage them to hold them longer, mm-hmm. that makes these people uh, accessories in that. So it's a very, very serious crime we'd be talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, some uh, just some of the indications that there might have been a deal. Number one, uh, I cite in my article uh, internal notes uh, showing urgent concern on the part of Reagan. Very, very worried that this October surprise secure a deal. There were negotiations going on. Let me, let, uh, let me, Russ, let me jump in there. You, you, because your phone broke up a little bit. You said that there was uh, a, a lot of concern by the uh, Reagan campaign that a, a deal might be reached, that the hostages might be released before the election. Yeah, they were terrified of this. And, and, you know, I don't know if you were around to remember this at the time, but, um, you know, we would watch on the evening news every night. They'd have whatever it was, like a countdown clock, you mm-hmm. know, yep. and it, or count-up clock. And yep. every night now it's day, you know, 245, yep. and day 321, you know, and it's still the hostages in the release. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the news media were basically destroying Carter themselves mm. by reminding the public every single day that he had not been able to secure their release. And so he was really on the rocks. And, of course, if he could secure the release, I think there's no question uh, that, uh, uh, that there would have been a surge in public approval. It was a very emotional issue. It was top of mind for the average American that he would have won. And so, uh, of course, they were terrified of this, and the notes show that they were really concerned about it, and they were paying very, very close attention to it. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, Carter was very close to a deal, but he didn't get the deal. And so the question, obviously, is if he was close to a deal, why didn't he get a deal? The third thing is, as you pointed out, that the Iranians released hostages the day Reagan was inaugurated. I mean, why would they do that mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for some reason of, of some kind of favorable thing that they had with Reagan. Now, further things, uh, and I, I get in this detail, I, I suspect we can't get in here, uh, uh, Bush and, and Casey uh, had a long history of, of these kinds of subterranean dealings. And in fact, one of the points I try to make is that George H.W. Bush uh, was in many ways a more important figure than Ronald Reagan was. Ronald Reagan was the master communicator, but he really was not involved uh, in a detailed way with any of this stuff. Whereas Bush, uh, as I as I show in Family of Secrets, Bush, his whole history has never been reported by the New York Times or any of the media. George Bush was presented by the New York Times 
as this kind of lightweight fellow, mm-hmm. not very accomplished, and somehow, for no reason, had no background in intelligence, but was named as the CIA director right in the middle of the time with the uh, church committee and all mm-hmm. the uh, hearings are going on investigating wrongdoing by the CIA. Out of all the people in the world that they could have chosen to manage that kind of a cover-up, they chose this, this uh, you know, kind of uh, weak-kneed uh, uh, man who'd been a brief, briefly a congressman and made the head of the CIA. It made no sense. I went back and I investigated him, and what I concluded, and I've got copious evidence in family secrets, was that Bush was a heavyweight in the CIA already. Mm. Uh, when, they, when they appointed him as director. In fact, he'd been in the CIA for decades, mm. right out of Yale, uh, using uh, the oil business as a cover. Now, once you know that, you see the particulars of his moving around, his being involved. He was in Dallas on November 22, 1963, working for the CIA and mm. meeting with Al Omer, mm. one of the CIA heads of coups. The fact that those two men were in Dallas when Kennedy was shot, uh, the fact that I've uh, got a lot about Bush and his involvement with Watergate, uh, uh, moving Nixon from office. These guys were in the leader removal business. They did it in Iran uh, with Mossadegh. They did it in uh, Guatemala. They did it uh, in the Congo. And and I think that they were moving Jimmy Carter was just par for the course. So mm. I think if you, if you know the real history, you say this is what these guys do. What they do. You know that if, in fact, uh, the story reported by The Times is true, and uh, frankly, even if it wasn't, even if the, uh, there was a deal made, if it was not via the route uh, that they report on Ben Barnes and, and Connolly, but it was, uh, you know, Bill Casey, perhaps uh, Poppy Bush and so forth, that uh, you know that it would, it would, quote, not be the first time a Republican presidential candidate negotiated against the entrance, interests of America to enhance his career. Richard Nixon's campaign worked aggressively to block Democratic peace negotiations to end the Vietnam War in 1968 for that same reason, you note. Well, given that, uh, you know, Peter Baker spends quite a bit of time discussing this story's relationship in various ways with LBJ, is is that similar story uh, of what uh, Nixon reportedly did? Wouldn't that be germane to this story as covered by the New York Times, which seems to have left out a lot of important context that, thankfully, you covered in your piece. I mean, you know, they, I, I, I did mention also that Nixon uh, deal. I mean, you know what? I, 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 one thing that always stuns me is the Republican Party historically has tried to sell itself as the more patriotic party. Mm. Uh, you see a lot more American flags being waved. If you look on Twitter... And if it says someone's a patriot, usually they're a Republican. And how ironic is that? Because we actually have many more examples mm. of, of Republicans either being, <laughs> I mean, this is factual, either being traitors mm-hmm. uh, or being uh, cowards like, uh, like, like George, D., George W. Bush with his getting out of Vietnam service. And then you see people who are reviled as weaklings or we're going to give things away to the enemy, like George McGovern, who was a bomber pilot in World War II. Mm. Uh, they went after Kerry, you remember that? They tried to make him yeah. out to be some sort of a bad guy, but yes. Kerry uh, uh, served in the, in the very, very dangerous swift boats in Vietnam. So it, it's all a bit of a mirage, and of course, the Reagan, uh, with, uh, with, with Trump, uh, his essentially traitorous, very close relationship with Vladimir Putin. So in all of this, the context of all of this is that, is that our media does not do a job of telling us the truth of what's really going on here in their constant effort to either show how fair and balanced they are 
uh, or, or or other things we can get into, but it's it, it's very very disheartening. And uh, you know what what troubles me is the lack of connecting the dots from one of these stories to the next when they're all related. You know, in reading your piece, Russ Baker, I, I was reminded of of the old butterfly effect, the old you know Chinese proverb about the flapping of the wings of a butterfly can be felt on the other side of the world. That one tiny occurrence in one place changes everything. Well, you discuss in your piece how this one event, however it happened, if in fact it happened, where, uh, well, we know it did happen in that, you know, Ronald Reagan ended up defeating Jimmy Carter. However that came about, uh, had it not happened, had Carter been successful, after all, in his effort to free the hostages, um, things would be very different. But that's not what happened. And the world has changed over the ensuing decades to where we are now. You know, not not just not only beginning with that moment, but certainly because of that moment right up to this very day. Uh, you, you write, imagine how this how things might look today if Reagan, the author of today's rule by the rich government, had not unseated Carter. And then you walk through a bunch of steps. Can you walk through some of, of those things that we probably would not have seen? had, uh, well, Reagan not whatever he did uh, to uh, to push Carter out. Sure. Well, one of the things they did was they carried out uh, plans by people like uh, uh, Lewis Powell, with the Powell Memo, mm-hmm. uh, these, you know, philosophers of the, uh, of, of the business uh, elites of the Republican Party and the corporations on how to rejigger government to turn it in their favor. And Reagan was the person who really carried uh, a lot of this stuff out. So all this stuff about, you know, Reaganomics, uh, trickle down, all this stuff they never really cared about, never believed it would work. If we Let's just cut the taxes of the rich and everybody will benefit, which of course never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, massive deregulation, the whole idea that government is bad and, and business is good and we should just outsource everything and just trust uh, the wealthy to run companies in the public interest and policies in the public interest, uh, all of this stuff. Uh, and, of course, if, if Reagan hadn't been elected, I think it's pretty safe to say George H.W. Bush would not have been elected president himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we wouldn't have had the, uh, uh, the Gulf War, and then his son wouldn't have become president. We wouldn't have had the Iraq War. Uh, we might not even have had 9-11, frankly, mm-hmm. because a lot of the anger... Uh, that that generated uh, these activities that led to 9/11, depending on what you believe that was about, uh, uh, had to do with policies that were carried out by these various presidencies. Uh, and then I think maybe even more importantly, uh, we're facing in extinction right now because of climate change. And whatever you want to say, there's huge differences uh, between uh, Democratic Republican administrations and their their, their policies uh, around the environment and yep. around climate change. And I think it's safe to say that if you didn't have the, 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 the two Reagan terms, the one George H., George H.W. term, the two George W. Bush terms, and you had other people, think of what would happen if, uh, if Al Gore had been president, for example. Mm-hmm. You, you could be pretty sure we would have had a very, very different policy years ago uh, uh, about climate change. And so the very, uh, uh, our very ability to continue to live on Earth they have been affected by all of these things. And, and just to add a few more things on the bonfire, um, I, I don't think they would have changed the media ownership laws. I think there would have been a lot more regulation. I don't think you would have uh, even had a Rupert Murdoch and a Fox News 
Um, and I, I don't think you would have had the, uh, 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 the, the current composition of the Supreme Court and all of their rulings for business and for the wealthy. Um, and I think campaign contributions would have been restricted. And that would have changed uh, Congress itself. So uh, whatever you want to pick, I think what we're looking at is a complete, it basically was a coup, mm-hmm. okay, Brad? It was a coup, a coup d'etat uh, uh, by, by making sure Carter didn't get reelected. And, and all of these regimes since then yep. were extensions of that, of that um, whatever you want to call it, that coup government, basically, with some, with some uh, partial breaks, I would say. Even the, even the partial breaks, uh, people like Clinton and, and Obama, very, very limited in their ability to do much. I think their hands were largely tied. So uh, a very, very profound change of everything as a result of this October surprise situation. Yeah, I mean it's it's really remarkable, which is why I sort of refer to that butterfly effect because it was that one that one moment in time, that one moment in history, had that worked out differently, so many things would have happened differently. I guess it's sort of uh, wonderful life ish. Uh, you know, if Harry hadn't been on that boat, he wouldn't have saved all those men and all of that. But that's really where we are, uh, Russ. It, Aside from what would have been or what, you know, might not have been had that not happened, here we are 43 years later. Does it actually matter, this story? And uh, and I was happy to see The New York Times run it because, as you also noted, they sort of have poo-pooed this over the years. They, they ran this story. Whether it turns out to be true or not, we don't know. But why is this story, or I should say, is this story important 43 years later? Well, I, 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 sadly, I think the Times story is wrong, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, it's important that they did the story because the Times still has this kind of hallowed status where I got all these emails from people saying, oh, my God, did you read this big scoop in the New York Times? So, you know, even if they get something wrong, just the mere fact that they pay attention to it mm-hmm. uh, uh, causes ripple. And uh, if that's the way that we're going to be uh, going back and discussing all these things and, and realizing, I think the real thing we need to realize is that we can't count on the New York Times mm. alone should not be our primary source of understanding the world that we live in. It's, uh, I like the Times. I read the Times. I, I think they have very good, hardworking people there who simply don't understand a lot of things you and I are talking about. Um, you know, it's a hard job working in the White House Bureau or something. It's completely different than understanding these kinds of convulsions and these kinds of complexities. And I, I don't think they have the people that can do that. And I I also think that it's important because it underscores how so many American presidents, frankly, have gotten away with so much one after another. I mentioned at the top, you know, the, drawing that straight line from, uh, you know, from Nixon to Reagan to both Bushes to Donald Trump, that you can't have one without without the other sort of pave the way for things to get worse and worse and worse. And it feels to me like, uh, you know, th- those repeated failures by the media to not hold these people accountable. They wouldn't, you know, they didn't want to cover your book on uh, on Bush. It eventually became a, a bestseller anyway, but they didn't want to cover your book at the at the New York Times for some reason. And I think that's why Look, there's going to be bad guys doing all sorts of bad guy things all the time. But the media, in theory, is meant to call those bad guys out. And when they stop, well, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. So to me, it's important. I'm glad they're covering it. If they got that story wrong, I can't speak to it. I know you feel, Russ, that uh, they may have uh, uh, gotten that one wrong. 
I'm glad that they're interested in covering it 43 years later, if that makes sense. Oh, as I say, I am too. I'm glad they covered it. It's got us talking about it. That's why I'm on your show today. Yeah. So, you know, good on them. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the presidents and holding them accountable. And, uh, I mean, I think we have to, we have to blame the media to a large respect for, uh, deliberately uh, sabotaging people like Bernie Sanders. Um, I, I did a piece some years ago where I compared headlines and, and leads in articles about Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. And what the New York Times would do was every time uh, Hillary Clinton won an easy victory that she should have won, they mm. said, oh, my gosh, this just shows how much momentum she has. <laughs> and whenever, uh, whenever Sanders won a very difficult victory, they would say insignificant. Now, <laughs> that's bias. And yeah. that's determining who's going to be the next president. And uh, lastly, uh, Russ Baker, you know, while I I know that everyone is already sort of exhausted about hearing about indictments and accountability for Donald Trump, my opinion, we got to start somewhere, Russ, because we could talk about all of these stories going back decades of all of these presidents who got away with all of these things that were clearly criminal, were never held accountable for it. and so I think we got to start somewhere. And if it's with Donald Trump, even if it has to do with hush money payoffs to a porn star, which, by the way, we're in the service of dishonestly uh, winning a presidential election, not unlike what we saw with uh, Nixon and Vietnam, not unlike what we saw with uh, Reagan uh, and, and Carter and the hostages, as, we, as we've been talking about, not quite as traitorous as that. But, you know. It's it, the permission has been given to do what you need to do to win a presidential election because no one is ever held accountable for it. So apparently, it is totally legal in this country at this point to you know pay off a porn star with hush money payoffs and because hey, you needed to do it to win uh, to become a president. From Nixon and Reagan on forward, things have gotten worse and worse, and that's why I would argue even these annoying. Uh, seemingly never-ending rounds of accountability for Donald Trump are important because we have got to start somewhere, Russ. Well, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, this is a man who almost everything he's done throughout his life is reprehensible. Much of it is borderline criminal, certainly unethical, immoral, and uh, there are many, many things you could go after him for. I'm, I'm glad to see they are going after him for this. Um, you know, the Georgia election thing is a, is a, is a more substantive story, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, but maybe not one that uh, that can be successfully uh, prosecuted. But in any case, uh, yes, this is this is a good move. I would, by the way, point out that the media is not afraid of going after people uh, who are running for office. But if you look at the ones that were taken down uh, over sort of strange things from Hillary Clinton with that uh, Anthony Weiner thing. And by the way, I wrote some, I think, pretty interesting pieces about what that was really about, mm-hmm. uh, which I have not seen reported by the major media about the, the whole Anthony Weiner thing. But uh, 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 Edwards, um, mm-hmm. uh, Muskie, uh, Gary Hart, I can go on. All these candidates <laughs> uh, who were taken down over uh, personal, you know, whatever you want to call them, alleged peccadilloes and so forth. So, it's not that the media doesn't go hard on people, but they seem to go hard only on certain people yes. and, and not always for the right reason. 
You're absolutely right. Well said, uh, Russ Baker. He's the editor-in-chief of the investigative media outlet whowhatwhy.org. He is uh, also the author of 2009's Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. And he also has a newsletter called Going Deep with Russ Baker, which you can sign up for, and you should, at russbaker.substack.com. I think I have that right. Oh, you can also find him on the Twitters at Real. Russ Baker. Russ, really appreciate you joining us today to talk about this. Look forward to more nightmares to discuss with you in the not-too-distant future, sir. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Thank you. All right. Well, let's take a quick break here, man. And I don't know. Uh, I don't, do we have time? I don't even know if we have time. But uh, if, if my phone number is 818-985-5735. If you have some thoughts, I've got some additional uh, stories I want to try to uh, get to today. So let's take a quick break, and we will come back with that right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to The Bradcast. Hi, this is Dan Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and you're listening to The Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Once again, my thanks to Russ Baker of Who, What, Why. Uh, a couple of uh, quick news items before we get out today. Rescuers ra- raced on Saturday to search for survivors and help hundreds of people who were left homeless after a powerful tornado cut a devastating path through Mississippi, killing at least 21 people. That uh, is actually somewhat good news, that number, because it was re- revised down recently from initially 25. We'll see if it stays low. Uh, dozens were injured. Uh, entire blocks uh, were flattened as the storm car- carved a, a path of destruction for more than an hour. Another person was killed in Alabama. The tornado devastated a swath of the Mississippi Delta town of Rolling Fork, reducing homes to rubble, flipping cars on their sides, toppling the tower, uh, the town's water tower. During the storm on Friday night, there is nothing left, said Wonder Bolden, holding her granddaughter while standing outside the remnants of her mother's now-leveled mobile home in Rolling Fork. Based on early data, the tornado received a preliminary EF4 rating from the National Weather Service in Jackson. And EF4 has top wind gusts between 166 and 200 miles per hour. Other parts of the deep deep south were also digging out from damage caused by other suspected twisters. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves issued a state of emergency. President Joe Biden promised federal help, describing the damage as heartbreaking. FEMA said in a briefing to emergency managers Monday that preliminary assessments show 313 structures in Mississippi were destroyed. More than 1,000 were affected in some way, one way or another. The damage in Rolling Fork was so widespread that several storm chasers who follow severe weather and 
often put up live streams uh, showing dramatic funnel clouds. They pleaded for search and rescue help. Others abandoned the chase, in fact, to drive injured people to the hospital. It did not help that the community hospital was damaged as well, forcing patients to be transferred. Preliminary information based on estimates from storm reports and radar data indicate that the storm was on the ground for more than an hour and traveled at least 170 miles. Lance Perlew, a meteorologist with the Weather Service in Jackson, uh, said that's a rare very, very rare uh, tornado. All the ingredients, he notes, were there. So Desi Doyen and hi, didn't get to say a hello to you at the top <laughs> hi, of the show. Hi, no worries. Uh, you know, this time of year, it's tornado season after all. We've had yes. large tornadoes before, though EF4s are uh, pretty rare. They are. We, they are becoming less rare. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, we've had storms that have been particularly deadly when they hit populated areas. Here, this was a rural area, but the twister stayed on the ground for a very long time, it seems. Uh, is just this the sort of thing that happens this time of year? Or is there a climate change aspect to this particular storm uh, in an area, by the way, the Deep South, not normally known for this type of storm? Well, there are two answers to that question. One is as far as this particular tornado. Yeah, it it is uh, definitely very rare to have one be on the ground for this long. And it does appear, based on the limited data that's available so far, that we are seeing more frequent, more intense tornadoes. But that's that's really inconclusive right now. For it to have stayed on the ground for as long as it did mm -hmm. indicates that there was a great deal of heat energy that was keeping it uh, fueled so mm -hmm. that it could sustain itself over 100 miles. So mm -hmm. that, I think, is where the climate change influence comes in. So now we do know already that natural disasters like heat waves and fires and floods and droughts, that those are growing more dangerous because of climate change. But the thing about tornadoes is that the data, the effect of global warming on tornadoes, that data is really mixed and inconclusive. And part of that is because, um, you know, we just don't have a whole lot of data. These are tornadoes are really short duration events, and they're very difficult to capture on satellite and to get enough data to make that kind of determination about it. But we do have other things that we do already know for sure. We know that climate change, global warming is raising the background level of temperature, and it's making more heat energy available for such storms and for such extreme weather events. So it provides more fuel for them. So there has been an observed increase in deadly nighttime tornadoes. This mm. was a nighttime tornado. Mm. They're extra deadly because yeah. people don't hear them coming. They're asleep. They don't hear the sirens. You can't see them coming. So that makes it that much more difficult. Um, we also know from climate change that nights are warming faster uh, than daytime in the U.S. So that does mean that tornadoes, you know, used to clamp down a little bit at night, but not anymore because the, the night times are getting warmer. We also know right now that the Gulf of Mexico is running several degrees hotter than normal right now. This is a growing trend for the Gulf of Mexico, which means that it's providing a lot more humidity and a lot more heat energy to the southeast. We also know that Tornado Alley is shifting eastward. Mm -hmm. Instead of being in the Midwest, it's now moving further to the east and to the southeast, especially. And that's because the dry line, which is that 
that imaginary line down the United States where the warm, dry, arid air from the West collides mm. with the warm Gulf air. That's where you see that has been moving further and mm. further east. And that collision gotcha. of those two conditions is what creates the volatility in these weather extremes that we see. So that's that's kind of where it is. The data is mixed, but it, it sure does look like climate change is amping up tornadoes. We just don't have the data to prove it definitively yet. I have said once or twice that we have uh, broke the weather. We have broke the climate yes, uh, through what definitely. we have done for all of these years. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Desi Doyle. One more story that I uh, think I can get in here. Um, at least three children and three adults are dead after a shooting on Monday at the Covenant School. That's a private Christian elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, that teaches preschool through sixth grade. Uh, according to police, the three children who were all killed, we've just learned uh, within the past hour, were all nine years old. Nine years old. Monday morning's uh, shooting at the school is the 129th mass shooting in the U.S. so far in 2023. That, according to the Gun Violence Archive, uh, which defines a mass shooting as one in which at least four people are shot, excluding the shooter. The shooter uh, was identified as a 28-year-old Nashville woman, uh, which is very rare for these sorts of uh, shootings. Uh, initially, it was thought that she was a teenager. Apparently, she was 28 years old from Nashville. She was also killed in a shootout with police. Her identity uh, is yet to be, and her motive, yet to be confirmed. But Don Aaron of the Metro Nashville Police Department said in a news conference on Monday that officers arriving to the scene encountered, quote, a female who was firing. Two responding officers opened fire on the shooter, and she was fatally shot. She was armed with at least two assault-type rifles and a handgun, according to uh, Aaron of the uh, Nashville PD. Last year, the U.S. hit 100 mass shootings on March 19, uh, according to the Gun Violence Archive. The previous year, in 2021, saw a late March date as well for the first 100 mass shootings. From uh, 2018 to 2020, the country didn't reach 100 mass shootings until May. Now we've reached 129 before March is out. Uh, <laughs> Fox uh, News was covering the uh, live broadcast of the press conference beginning uh, uh, being given by officials in Nashville. And uh, that was temporarily interrupted by a woman in attendance who uh, said that she was fed up with a slew of mass shootings. She had been uh, a victim of uh, her family had been a victim of a school shooting herself. And it was very interesting, this interesting moment where this woman sort of uh, took over the cameras and Fox News was moving back and forth trying to decide whether to stick with the woman, whether to pull away or not. Here's a little bit what that sounded like on Monday. Aren't you guys tired of covering this? Aren't you guys tired of being here and having to cover all of these mass shootings? I'm from Highland Park family vacation with my son visiting my sister-in-law. I have been lobbying in D.C. since we survived a mass shooting in July. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? Gun violence is the number one killer of children and teens. It has overtaken cars. 
Assault weapons are contributing to the border crisis and fentanyl. We are arming cartels with our guns and our loose gun laws. And these shootings and these mass shootings will continue to happen until our lawmakers step up and pass gun safety legislation. We can't even pass safe storage laws in this country to protect kids from getting a hold of weapons that they shoot each other with. All right, so uh, we're going to break away there because that reporter who was using that camera is uh, obviously setting up to do a, a live report there. But the woman said it quite succinctly, aren't you tired of this? Yes, we are tired of this. Yeah, that was uh, Fox News anchor John Roberts. Uh, we, we tried to shorten some of the breakaways. We were coming back to Fox, and then they went back to the woman who had sort of taken over that camera to make that statement. Um, and uh, then Roberts comes back and says, yeah, they are growing tired of the uh, of the number of school shootings. Um, Roberts uh, said, uh, yeah, we are tired of this. He went on to say, we're very tired of reporting on school shootings week in and week out. He said uh, during the network's live coverage of the shooting at the private elementary school in Nashville on Monday last week, he noted Alicia Acuna who was uh, frantically waiting for her son to come out of the East High School in Denver after a shooting, Robert said, referencing a Fox reporter who was in the middle of a live broadcast from a Denver school that her own son had attended when she was then reunited with her child on live television. The Fox reporter uh, reporting on a school shooting at her son's own school and being reunited on camera. Uh, John Roberts went on to list, you know, Uvalde, Texas, Sandy Hook. He said, and yes, I think as a nation, I, we are tired of these. He said, referring to the other mass killings at schools, I don't mean to be speaking out of turn, he said, but I believe as a parent that there are a lot of people out there who are sick of these school shootings. Well, you don't say, John Roberts. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you are speaking out uh, of turn now, finally, John Roberts, because your network has officially been an accomplice in all of these shootings. John, over all of these years. I'm glad you're finally tired of it. We know that you are perfectly capable of activism at Fox News. We have seen that for years. We have seen that very specifically now with all the material that has come out in this uh, lawsuit against Fox News by the Dominion Voting Systems Company. You're perfectly capable of, you know, being activists there, John, at Fox. Y'all do it every single day on every single topic that the Republican Party wants you to be activists on. But, you know, on doing something to stop the scourge of gun violence and the tsunami of children being gunned down in school shooting after school shooting. Well, you go live and you go wall to wall with just about every one of these because, you know, it's good for ratings. But actually calling out the elected officials who allow all of this to happen. Well, that's that's a very different story. They allow all of this to happen, those elected officials, by refusing to adopt gun safety legislation, as that woman was talking about there. And she wouldn't have been uh, welcomed as a guest on Fox News had she not essentially stolen the camera and taken the limelight to make her point. I'm glad you stuck with her for most of what she had to say. 
But those lawmakers who y'all support on on Fox News, uh, you know, who refuse to do anything about gun safety, like restoring the successful assault weapons ban that George W. Bush allowed to expire back in 2004. Well, that, you know, might actually help. That might actually help you uh, to get some rest, to not become so uh, exhausted and tired in uh, covering one school shooting after another. But for years at Fox, y'all have taken the other side of that fight. Calling those who would like to do something about this worsening public health epidemic, calling them gun grabbers, lying about such laws being in violation of the Second Amendment. Well, maybe Fox can do something about this shooting, maybe, because it was at a Christian school. Who knows? Instead of at a public school, maybe that'll make a difference to you people. The way you suddenly gave a damn about poor white people being endangered from that East Palestine, Palestine, Ohio chemical train derailment a few years, a few weeks ago, after not giving a damn about toxic exposure for poor people of color all across this nation for years, for decades. And you didn't give a damn. And I'm sorry, John Roberts and Fox News, that you're all tired of of all the school shootings. But you and your network have helped make this mess. You and your network still lack the courage to call people out for it while having the temerity to say that you are tired of it. You're tired of it? Imagine how the actual victims and their families feel. You idiot. All right. We're getting out. Just in time. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator today, Wendell Handy, to my guest, Russ Baker of WhoWhatWhy.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. There is no paywall. You can share it with your friends, your family, your enemies, your friends, anyone you like at bradblog.com. You can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I, oh, and the Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.